written to um, this group of people, the early church, and he's written to them about how they are to conduct themselves in the world. He's talked about relationships within the home. He's talked about relationships outside of the home. He's given them some pretty wise counsel on how they can live differently, not just for the sake of being odd. We're surrounded by people that want to be individuals, that want to be different than everybody else. I was raised in the 90s, so grunge was big. How many of you have ever heard of the group Nirvana? Nirvana was this group that was fantastic, great lyric writing, um, uh, very depressing, lots of minor keys, but they were expressing what the generation at the time was feeling. They were feeling despair. Uh, many of them came out of um, you know, Bible Belt America. Some of them didn't. But they were disillusioned with this American dream of the white picket fence and everything's all right. And now that I've worked hard enough, my kids can have it better than I did. And then you had this, and I'm not going to get a full view of this, but the idea was... I don't want the American dream. I'm going to wear flannel. I'm not taking baths. I'm not going to get a haircut. It's not going to be a mullet. I'm going to grow all my hair out long. And then I'm going to show you what my generation has to offer. I'm going to be different than everybody else. Mind you, every generation does this. We all have this desire to be different than the rest of our peers. But what's funny is in our individuality, we end up being like everyone else. We shop at all the same stores. We do all the same things. We just want to be different. And in our being different, we end up all being alike. And I say that because as soon as Walmart starts selling the clothes that everybody's wearing, we go, well, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to do something different. And then we follow our peers and we become all the same. In our differences, we become uniform, which is kind of ironic. Well, every generation is like that. And so Peter's writing to them, you are called to be different. So be free in that. Understand that you're called to be different than the generation you live in. That desire to be individuals and to be different than everybody else, I believe it's a God-given desire. I believe that it's a God-given desire to want to be different. And I say that because God has made us all different. There are twins, but even twins that are identical twins are different. They have minutia of difference. Sometimes only the mom can tell the difference. But if you zoom into our fingerprints, very basic, unnecessary difference between all of us is we have unique fingerprints. And that's because God made us all different. He wanted us to know that it's okay to be different. As a matter of fact, he enjoys the difference. So with that being said, in our differences, God wants to make us even different than just the differences that we have physically and emotionally and, and just the way that we look and everything. So in our differences, God has made us different. As believers, we've been born again to this, Peter calls it, this living hope in Christ that our hope doesn't have to be in us being different, but our hope is actually in the one who came who was totally different than all of us Greater love has no man that he would lay down his life for his brother or for his friends. And Christ suffered on our behalf so that we could be set free from trying to be individuals. We could be set free from the, the vein of the culture, uh, from vanity, 
uh, from success being our main goal in life. For some of you, your main goal has been to be different than your parents because you despise them in some way. For some of you, your goal has been to live up to that potential that they sacrificed for so that you had it better than them. But we have a living hope in Christ that even if none of that stuff takes place, that we can be secure in our salvation. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's already said in verse 8 through about 12 that we should cultivate Christian love as believers. And he says this in verse 8, finally, finally, all of you be of one mind and have compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted and be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, in return for evil or reviling, he says, but on the contrary, blessing them for their evil or their reviling of you. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, he says in there, be of one mind. So I want to take you to Philippians chapter 2 because this be of one mind is something that Paul also wrote about. In Philippians 2 chapter 5, Paul wrote, describing Jesus Christ, he said, let this mind be in you. So he says, let this mind, this is a singular term. Peter writes, you should be of one mind. Paul tells us what mind we are to be of. You're not to be of my mind. That'd be creepy. You're not to be of your parents' mind. But as believers, we should all have the same mind that was in Christ. And the mind of Christ, what does that look like? He says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But even though he was equal with God, he made himself of no reputation. That means he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And if you remember John chapter 13, he did this practically. He literally girded himself with a towel, bent down at the table and washed all of his disciples' feet, which the only slave in the house that would do that would be the lowest slave on the totem pole. So he literally became practically a doormat. That was his mind. The mind that was in Christ has also been given to you, the Holy Spirit who humbles us and helps us take on the form of a slave. Now, this isn't a slave that does it because they're beaten if they're not willing, but this is a slave that wants to serve because of what Christ has done for us. This mind that was in Christ took on the form of a slave, and being found, verse 8 says, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross, which was the most heinous way to die. As a matter of fact, this week I read in Deuteronomy, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. That's what the law says. If you're hung on a tree, you're a cursed man. But Jesus became the curse for us because there was a curse involved with disobedience to God's commands. So he took the curse upon himself in obedience to his father's will. It was God's will that Christ would suffer. Now, we struggle with that, don't we? 
How could it be God's will if he loves me to make me suffer? And yet what it says here in this passage is that Christ became obedient in suffering. And Peter's going to write later that Christ learned obedience through suffering. It's not obedience if God tells us what we want to do and we do it. I mean, it is obedience. And God in, in Psalm 37 actually says that if you delight yourself in the Lord, that he will change the desires of your heart and his desires will be your desire. So you'll want to do what he wants you to do. But Christ also in his humanity, in his flesh, learned to obey while suffering. It wasn't ideal conditions. And so, but then he goes on in verse 9 and says, Therefore, God has also highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, humility is actually the path to exaltation. Humbling ourselves is actually the way to be lifted up. Humbling ourselves is us purposely lowering ourselves like Christ did for us, and then whoever humbles himself, God will exalt. And it won't be for the purposes that we exalt ourselves for in this life. And so Peter, in this same theme, says, let this mind be in you. Be of one mind that Christ is the head of the church, and so we are all to be guided by his mind, his thoughts, his ways. So in that same vein, he says, as he's preparing us for glory, as he's preparing us for exaltation, he says, cultivate Christian love. Let the mind of Christ be in you. But then he says, or then he says, we need to practice the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, I went through this quickly last time, so I'm going to take a few moments to recap. But verse 13, he says, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, guess what? You're blessed. Okay, how does that work out? How do I become blessed through suffering? Well, he goes on to say, Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to those, excuse me, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it's better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, we can be blessed in suffering if we'll recognize that it's an opportunity for us to look at God and say, God, I I trust that you're God and that I'm not, and that Romans 8.28 is true, that all things work together for the good of me if I'm called according to your purpose And I love you above all else. And so recognizing that Christ is the Lord in our hearts is something we have to learn to practice. And I say that because we oftentimes confess Christ as Lord, and yet when life doesn't go the way that we want it to, 
we start to back away and go, wait a minute, God, that's not what I asked for. That's not what I wanted. But in those moments where we are experiencing pain, where things aren't going the way that we want them to, that's an opportunity for us to confess to God, I don't get it, but I trust you. I recognize that you're God and that there must be some sort of good that you're going to work in my life, even though this thing really, really sucks. This thing's really, really hard. And if we can do that, we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, we're we're no longer going to be afraid of those who threaten us or those who call us evil even though we're doing good, those who mock us for our faith. And the reality is, as believers, you're more and more likely each day and each year that progresses to be mocked for believing in Jesus Christ. And, and, And the reality is, Um, at that moment, you're going to have to decide whether or not you care what they have to say about you or if you really believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And so what we don't often recognize is that in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 here, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, where he says, Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Isaiah was prophesying to the nation of Israel And at the time, Assyria and Israel had made a league, and they were persecuting, I think, check me on this, Judah, who was the southern kingdom. And when they were doing this, they started mocking Israel and saying, hey, we're going to overtake you. Syria was going to oppress them. And in Isaiah chapter 8, sorry, Isaiah chapter 7, I'm going to turn there. They were going through some very real oppression, and they were starting to worry if their situation was going to get worse. And so Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz, who is the king of the nation he's speaking to at the time. And it says there, It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, who was the king of the northern tribes of Israel, Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but they could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed to Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So I like the, the language there. It says that they get this bad news and the heart of David and the heart of Israel were moved. Have you ever gotten news that causes your belly to get a little upset or your heart to be troubled and all of a sudden there's this wave of anxiety, much like the wave of wind that would move trees? Uh, This week we're going to see a little bit of rain. I don't know if there's going to be wind with it, but Hurricane Barry has a little bit of a remnant that's going to kind of keep coming up our way. Now, we will not see the wind that they saw at the coast, right? But we will see some wind. And the reality is the storms of life can move you and cause you to falter and be waved around. And we'll see that with wind on the trees. It says here that at the news of this word, it caused their hearts to be shaken. It caused their hearts to be moved. But the beauty is, is that Isaiah has been sent to them to speak comfort to them and say, hey, they're not going to overtake you. And so if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8, in verse 11, 
Isaiah speaks and says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand. The wind is strong and it blows us. But God speaks through Isaiah, it says there, with a strong hand. We use our hands for comfort, right? How many times do children get shaken, they're afraid of something, and sometimes words don't do it, and so we give them a big hug. We pat them on the back. It's going to be okay. We comfort. Our hands can be used for harm, but our hands can be used for comfort. So God, using his hand through the pen of Isaiah, says here, it says here that God instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy. Don't be afraid of their threats, he says. Don't be troubled. Bad news from them is not necessarily bad news. It's just words. Verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Don't worry but what, about what man has to say about you. Worry about the Lord and what he thinks about you, what he has to say. Don't trust in man's word, trust in God's word. Now, in the Lord's prayer that Jesus taught to his disciples, he says, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The word is sanctify his name. The word is um, his name is unlike any other. Our God is not like you and I. He is not driven and tossed by the wind. Our hearts can be shaken, but our God cannot. And so he says here, hallow the Lord. Let him be your fear. Don't worry about what man can say or even do to you, but worry about what God has said and what he will do. And if we'll consider that our God is bigger than any trial we could experience, any oppression, any words that are said about us, if we care more about what he says about us than what men can say about us, it'll keep us from a lot of trouble. It'll keep us from doubting, but it will also keep us from neglecting to obey the simplest of commands he's given us. If we fear the Lord, then our lives will be different. We'll live life in light of eternity, but we'll live life as if Jesus is watching what we're doing. No longer thinking, oh no, God's going to see me doing this, but now going, God, how can I please you today? I want to make you happy. I want to honor you with my life. Not because I have to and I'm worried that you're going to smack me down or strike me with lightning or the, the roof of the church is going to fall in if I go in, but now able to serve out of just thankfulness in my heart for what God's done. I want to please you, Lord. You've done so much to make my life meaningful and full of purpose. You've bought me back from slavery. You've set my feet upon the rock. How can I not want to take this platform you've given me and make you my praise? Make you the song of my heart. Make you the, the thing that I'm celebrating in my life. How can I not want to worship you with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? And so back in 1 Peter, he says this. He says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then he says, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you why you have hope, even though your life is in chaos and you have problems. God's not told us that our lives will be problem-free. He's told us that when we suffer, he's going to give us opportunities to proclaim his goodness. 
despite the problems. He says, so basically what he's saying here is, is practice the lordship of Christ. And then he says in verse 16, having a good conscience. Maintaining a good conscience is, is something that we as believers are called to do. The conscience is what we see things through. It's the window. Jesus said the eyes are the window to the soul. But I would say our conscience is the way that we see the world. And if our conscience has been purified by the blood of Christ, then we'll see things differently than the world sees things. But when we muddy our eyes and we get them dirty, our conscience, when it's seared, Paul wrote to Timothy, is a hot iron, and we start drudging our conscience, and we start seeing things and watching things and doing things that actually change our perspective and and make us dirty, then we'll see things through the eyes of the world. We'll see things not clearly as God wants us to see them. And so maintaining a good conscience that when they defame us as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ will be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So in verse 18, he goes on to say, For Christ also... And I like those words. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about when we suffer. He's talking about how it will be an opportunity to testify or witness to God's goodness. Excuse me. But then he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Christ suffered. We follow Christ, and if we are called to suffer, he also has also suffered for sins Look at this. He says, the just for the unjust. You want to talk about suffering for doing the right thing? Christ suffered for doing the right thing. Christ was reviled. When he cast demons out of people that were oppressed physically and spiritually by demons, they called him Satan. They called him the prince of the demons. Oh, look at this man. He's a blasphemer. And he's casting demons out of people by the prince of the demons. No wonder he can do it. He is a demon. They called him demonic. Now, these people had suffered for years under the oppression of real demons. Think about this. Many people were sick for 30 years or blind or lame. Jesus walks up. He heals them. And the crowd didn't go, woohoo! Actually, the religious leaders looked at him and said, man, this man's a blasphemer. He's claiming to be God. He's healing on the Sabbath. And he even asked them, you tell me, is it unlawful to do good on the Sabbath? What man among you wouldn't, if he had one of his animals or an ox stuck in a hole on the Sabbath, won't do good and show mercy and compassion and bring them out of that hole? How much more worthwhile, how much more Uh, How much more does he love human beings than animals? And so Christ suffered once for sins. He suffered as a substitute, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered, and the results of his suffering is that he's reconciled. The idea is he's brought us 
sinful human beings in the presence of God, no longer under judgment, but now reconciled a relationship that was once broken by sin, by our rebellion. We don't deserve to be in the presence of God, and he's brought us near. He's brought us into the Holy of Holies. In the Jewish religion, no one went into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest. And our high priest Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, took upon himself our sin, was murdered. He became a curse for us. And because of our debt being paid for, now he's not only in the Holy of Holies, but he brings us with him, brought near by suffering. We don't have to suffer for it, though. He suffered for us. Our, our debt is completely paid for. We didn't have to do a thing except trust by faith in his sacrifice. So now he's brought us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. He was put to death. His body suffered, but his spirit was renewed. And I tell you what, if there's something that you'll learn is that in suffering, your flesh will be destroyed. You'll, you'll take up your cross, but your spirit will be renewed day by day. He says, by whom also, verse 19, he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. Now, this is a difficult verse, so have grace on me because I don't fully understand what he's saying here. Some would say that sometime between the death of Jesus and his resurrection, that he was still working, that he was busy, that he went down and he went to Hades and he proclaimed to those who were in Abraham's bosom. That's Hades. There's a difference between Hades and hell. Hades was called Abraham's bosom. If you remember the story of the lame man that sat at the gate of Lazarus, Lazarus and the lame man. Lazarus was there, and he had, was rich his whole life, and, and he was in torment. And yet there was this man that had suffered at his gate who was in Abraham's bosom until Jesus could come and proclaim victory, and he could believe. I, I don't know. Like, I, I struggle with this passage, and I've read so many uh, accounts of it this week that I'm not really sure what to believe. Uh, one man also commented and said that after Jesus' death, and his brutal murder, that he actually went down and he proclaimed, um, uh, he, he preached to the spirits in prison. And, and the word spirits here, he said, was about uh, the uh, demonic angels. There was a third of the angels from heaven that followed Satan, Lucifer, who used to be the worship leader in heaven. And we read about him in Revelation that there's the tale of the serpent who drug down a third of the stars, speaking of uh, the angels. And a third of the angels actually fell and they followed Satan in rebellion against God. And so they're in captivity. And what it says here is that uh, Jesus preached, and the idea is not that he preached the good news, the gospel, but that he actually preached victory and said, hey, hey, I won. Everything you thought you were doing to defeat me, I can now proclaim to you my defeat, like we just sang earlier, actually means victory over sin and death. You didn't get the final answer. And so um, he proclaimed 
uh, to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. And I believe that that second take is what what it actually it's about, that he was proclaiming uh, victory over those um, disobedient spirits. And when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, so those who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now, he haphazardly, in my opinion, mentions Noah. But the idea is, think about this, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he preached to an entire generation for 120 years. He preached righteousness with his words, but he also proclaimed righteousness and a way of salvation with his actions. He built an ark. And we sing about the arky arky. Made of barky barky. You know, it's a children's church song. But he built an actual ark that was of gargantuan portions made plenty of space for two of every kind, and then more of the animals that would need to be sacrificed. But he proclaimed a way of salvation. But it says there, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, think about this. The same water that was used to save and lift up those who trusted in the ark and got on, is the same water that judged the rest of the entire world. So the flood was proclaimed, the judgment. The water is judgment. And the flood ultimately was going to kill and cleanse the earth of sin and rebellion. Now, ultimately, the eight that were saved also kind of passed on the sin and rebellion in their hearts. But they trusted in the ark. They got on the ark. It was an act of faith. And because of that, when the flood came, it didn't mean for their death. It actually meant for their exaltation. They humbled themselves and got on this boat. It had never rained. It made no sense to get on the ark, except there was this warning of judgment. So think about this. Noah proclaimed for 120 years. How many people did he convert and win? Seven. Seven people. So maybe you feel like, I'm not that great of a witness for Jesus. Noah, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, was successful as a minister of righteousness. In God's eyes, he was a spiritual giant because he trusted what God told him to do. So in your life, if you feel like you're not making an impact and there's only seven people you've ever spoken to or one where you've shared Jesus with them, it's okay. Share Jesus with those who are in front of you. Your your job is not to make them actually receive it. Your job is to tell it. Tell the story of what God's done in your life. Tell them what he's given you to share. And if they don't respond, that's on them. Our job is just to sow seed. Our job is just to share. Our job is just to give a reason for why we believe what we believe and be faithful to that calling. And if you'll do that, Guess what? We're going to be in the hall of faith too. But I also like this. Verse 23, 22. He says, There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but it's actually the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven 
and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Now, think about this. In Philippians chapter 2, we already read, at the name of Jesus, every, name will, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Not just humans, but also principalities and powers. Those who have tormented even the saints, the, the rebellious angels, the demons, they will all be under his authority practically. And so he talks about baptism here, and he talks about the fact that baptism, and then he specifies, at least in the New King James, this isn't actually a physical bath that makes us sinless, but it's actually the answer of faith, of obedience, towards a conscience that is bent towards obeying God. And so I want to encourage you, my pastor did this for years, and I finally responded to it, but baptism is not something that saves a human being. Baptism doesn't save us. It's faith in Christ, a conscience that's willing to respond to God in faith. In repentance, that's what John the Baptist, he came with a baptism of repentance. And by repenting of our sin, saying, God, I agree with you, your standard's right, mine was wrong, I want to obey you now, then an outward sign of that inward change of heart is baptism. But I would encourage you, if you've never done that, you don't have to, but I would encourage you, be baptized. Identify with Christ in that way. It's, it's, it's freeing because you're physically doing something you've already done spiritually. You're physically allowing yourself to die, to be taken down in the water. And if you've ever spent any time underwater trying to breathe, It'll kill you, right? That's the picture, simply. But that being raised up, you don't stand up on your own. Someone else raises you in baptism. And the picture is that the Spirit of God is actually making you alive again. That not under your own power are you raising yourself up by your own bootstraps, but that Jesus, by the Spirit of God, is raising you up. And by faith, you're you're identifying with that. You're saying, I'm, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now is according to the power of the Spirit that's been given to me. And I tell you what, I hadn't done this, and I was already leading the youth at Parkland Chapel. And I remember reading about John being uh, baptizing Jesus in the book of John. And, and I was like, you know what? For the first time, I get it. I want to do this. And I felt freed up to go do it. And I took the step of faith. Nothing changed other than I proclaimed to all those that were believers around me, I'm a Christian. I identify with Christ. I've died. That old man, he gone. And he's still going to try to rear his ugly head from time to time. But I'm now going to live in obedience to faith in Jesus. And, and the life I live, I want to proclaim Jesus with what I do. And so... If that's you, I would encourage you. There will be an opportunity this summer to be baptized if you want to do that. But um, it's, it's a humbling and it's a blessing. And so it's, it's not about being cleansed outwardly, but it's an, outward, it's an inward change that you're recognizing. And Jesus has gone into heaven. He's now at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers are made subject to him. But it all came through him humbling himself. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us. Christ didn't suffer for himself. He suffered 
for us in the flesh. He says, since he did this, arm yourselves also with the same mind. There's that thought again. Let this mind be in you, not considering yourself above suffering, but recognizing that if we follow Jesus and he's our leader, a servant is not greater than his master. If your master suffers, then recognize you're probably going to also. He says, arm yourselves also with this same attitude or this same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. No longer living for our own will, but living for the will of God. I like this verse, verse 1, because he says, arm yourselves with the same mind, for if you have suffered in the flesh, you have ceased from sin. Now, he's not saying that if you suffer, you'll no longer sin and everything's going to be hunky-dory. That would be a great message, by the way. Oh, I just got to suffer a little bit? Great. But what he's saying is if, if you learn to do the right thing and to suffer with joy and with patience and endurance, what you'll find is that the, actually the more you suffer in the flesh, the more you're thoughts are going to be towards heaven and living for the heavenly kingdom and not this life. And I've seen that. I've, I, there was a friend of mine, uh, his daughters were in youth group, and I didn't know him super well, so I'm not saying like we were the best buddies ever, but I'm saying that he struggled with anxiety his whole life, and his anxiety actually caused him to, to not take steps of faith. And then he came down with cancer. Stage four, it's over. Like, your days are numbered. Which, by the way, whether or not you have cancer, do you know your days are numbered? Your days are numbered. There are a set amount of days that God's given you, and you have the choice to use them for yourself or to use them to glorify God. Um, but my point is, when he came down with stage four cancer, and he recognizes his days were numbered, boy, there was a boldness there was a freeness that came out of him that I had never seen before. Um, but he started saying things to people, and he started doing things, and he started taking steps of faith because, what do you got to lose? Bucket list, but instead of a bucket list for the flesh to fulfill its desires, it was a bucket list like, when I see Jesus, I want to be like, hey, I got it done. All the things that you wanted me to do, I all of a sudden felt free to do them when I was dying. And I did them because I no longer cared what people thought of me because they're, they're not going to be around for very, I, we're not going to be around each other anymore. Who cares what they think? And I tell you what, if we could live with that perspective, if God allows suffering, he's trying to give you that perspective sometimes. Hey, this life's short. It's painful. It's tough. Guess what? It's not what it's about. Comfortable is not what I've called you to. I've called you to victory. I've called you to victory over sin. I've called you to victory over your, your introspectiveness. I've called you to just be free to proclaim what you know about me. And, and so he says, once you've suffered in the flesh, you've ceased from sin. You no longer have a desire for it because you've seen the consequences enough times. Why do we keep hitting our head against the wall? Because it feels so good when we stop. My dad used to say that all the time. I loved it. 
He would say that to us because we were hard-headed kids. I keep telling you that if you do this thing, it's not going to go well for you. And you keep going back. How many times has our Heavenly Father warned us about things where we're like, yeah, I know, but I can handle it. Or it really doesn't affect me that way. I'm free. But the reality is we're, we're putting our hand in a meat grinder and then going, why does this hurt? You know, I've heard so many people say, man, Satan's really been after me. I don't, I, I think sometimes he is. Don't get me wrong. I think spiritual warfare is absolutely real. But I think most of the time for us, it's not Satan. It's, it's consequences from choices that we have made because we've disobeyed simple things God's warned us about. Anyway, verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. Another translation might say, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of those who are godless. Have you spent enough of your life and wasted it doing things that the godless are doing? He says, When we walked in lewdness. Now, maybe... I want you to read, as you read this, I want you to think, is this really my past? But I also want you to think, do I remember these times? Because I, I, I read this this morning, and, and I didn't feel condemned by this, but I remembered all of these things for me personally. I spent way too much of my past life doing what godless people do. Walking in lewdness, in lust, in drunkenness, in revelries, drinking parties. I went to Rolla, folks. I spent a lot of time in drinking parties. My liver is still struggling, and I haven't drunk for 12 years. But the reality is, that's who I was. I spent way too much of my life in dissipation, looking to feel better about my circumstances and really just destroying my physical abilities walking in abominable idolatries. He says in verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, and they speak evil of you. When I stopped walking as much, I'm still a work in progress, but when I gave up a lot of these obvious things, people spoke unwell of me. They spoke evil of me. How come you don't do this with us anymore? And as a matter of fact, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Who cares what they say? But then he says, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. He's not talking about the gospel being preached to dead people. That does no good. It is appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. There's no second chance. There's no purgatory. That's unbiblical. But what he's saying is, those who are dead in their sins and trespasses, they are the walking dead. You want to see zombies? People without Christ are walking around. They're living, they're breathing, but they are dead in their sins and trespasses. He says, For this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. God wants to awaken them. He wants to quicken them. What Jesus did for Lazarus, calling him out of the grave, he wants, that to do, he wants to do that for the people in our lives that are still dead in their sins and trespasses. And I want to tell you something, he is able. He's able to speak life and to raise people from the dead that are walking and living and breathing and, and encapsulated, captured by their sin. He is able. 
I am a walking, living, breathing, talking example of that. I was inoculated with the gospel. I'd heard it a million times. I was surrounded by Christian brothers and sisters that were speaking these things to me, and I thought I was a pretty good person and that I had believed it, and yet I was still walking in this big list that we don't want to go over. But Christ, even in my self-righteousness, was able to break through my hard heart. People prayed for me. People shared with me. People lived as examples before me. And guess what? I'm accountable for everything that they said, whether I responded to it in faith or not. But by God's grace, he quickened me. He made me alive. I'm a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And I'm walking in that now. When I backslid in between what I would say really coming to faith and trying to walk in faith, I backslid. And there were people that because of their uncleansed consciences actually were ready to high-five me. I noticed that you were getting awful religious. I'm, I'm glad you chilled out. That's the way they saw it. But in Christ, now I look back and go, wow, I really, I, I stepped back and I started walking the flesh again. And yet Christ, in his abundant mercy, never, ever, ever, ever gave up on me. And he's not going to give up on you. And he's not giving up on the people you're praying for. He is able. He died. He suffered. He's pursuing them. He's the hound dog of heaven. Once he gets on their tail, he will not give up. And they will become miserable. They will become angry. They will become disillusioned. And God will still not give up on him. He is able. Keep praying, keep trusting, keep walking. And for you who struggle, keep going because he is not finished yet. Philippians also says, he who began a good work will also be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus' return. But until then, we trust him by faith We understand that what his word says will be accomplished. Not one dot of the I, not one cross of a T will not go unfulfilled. And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for suffering. Thank you for pain. Thank you for trouble in this life that causes us to look up away from our circumstances to the God not only who is able to meet us in them, who is able to heal us from them, but also is able to deliver us through them. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your life. Thank you for resurrection. Thank you for redemption, for buying us back from our sins. Help us to put aside the things that so easily ensnare us and and start walking forward. Help us to let go of the things that we're no longer free to take part in and to live as that man who knows that his days are numbered. Even Moses wrote in the Psalms, Teach me, Lord, to number my days, to walk in wisdom, to walk in sobriety, to be aware of what the will of the Lord is and to be aware of the fact that we do have an adversary that wants to steal from us to rob from us, and to destroy our lives. Lord, help us to live in thankfulness, recognizing the price that was paid, but also just in gratitude, recognizing the God who loves us and saw it as worthy 
to pay that price. I love you, Lord. I thank you. You are good. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.